0: You've tuned in to the Kojo Nam, the show on WAMU 885 Welcome. How will schools reopen this fall amid the pandemic? In the Washington region, the picture is just beginning to come into focus. For some districts, the goal is a combination of in-person and remote instruction. For others, it's fully online. In the first in our series on education amid a pandemic, we look at what's factoring into these decisions. How much of a say do parents, students, and teachers get? And what do public health experts recommend when it comes to keeping everyone safe? Joining me now is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, an epidemiologist and associate professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Jennifer Nuzzo, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: What are your biggest concerns when it comes to schools reopening this fall?
1: Well, I think the largest issue we need to figure out is um, how we keep transmission in the community low enough to allow schools to safely reopen. I think it is absolutely possible that schools can safely reopen, but it's going to be really difficult if we have rising um, disease rates in the community that um, lives around a school.
0: Dr. Nuzzo, is it possible to create a safe school experience during a pandemic? What would that look like?
1: I do think it's possible. Um, we have some good evidence from other countries that have been able to reopen schools. Of course, it starts with having low um, levels of infection in the community uh, generally. But um, once you achieve that, then thinking about how to reopen schools involves the things that we know are important for limiting and reducing transmission. So trying to keep distance between people, um, in, investing in um, you know hygiene and measures like masks and um, trying to limit the amount of interactions we have so um, keeping class sizes small if possible and um, the more time outdoors the better
0: are there examples that you think we should be looking to in other places
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. A number of countries have taken really creative approaches. Um, uh, One in particular is the use of outdoor classrooms. I think a lot of people hear about that and think that's probably not possible for the US, but um, other more colder countries have been able to use outdoor classrooms. So I think we should think about if that's possible and, you know, maybe in terms of using Um, tents or other covered structures to allow that to continue until the weather obviously um, gets to a point where it's really problematic. Um, We've also seen uh, schools try to um, increase the distance, and sometimes they do that by staggering um, when they start students, or um, sometimes they first start by reconvening the children that we know are most likely to benefit from in-person Uh, instruction, and that's, you know, the younger children. So starting first with those grades, and then um, as we go on, think about bringing in the older kids. Dr. Nazo, what
0: do we know so far about children and the coronavirus? How likely are they to become infected and spread the virus to others?
1: Well, what we know so far is that um, children um, can, in fact, get the virus, um, but they seem to be much less likely to become severely ill. um, And certainly, um, you know, things like hospitalizations. Um, adults over 50 are 74 times more likely to be hospitalized than school age kids. So that is quite reassuring that if kids do get the virus, um, it is less likely to harm them in the same way that it could adults. That said, um, low risk is not no risk, and there are, of course, um, some reports that have, um, of severe illness in kids that are very much a concern. But on balance, uh, a number of expert groups have looked at what the risks to kids are and have concluded that the benefits of in-person education, if done safely, and that's a big if there, but if done safely, um, would exceed the potential harms to kids in bringing them back to schools.
0: Well, no country has tried to send children back to school with the virus surging at the levels we're seeing here in this country, but there's also enormous pressure to bring students back to the classroom to make sure they're not falling behind academically. So how are school districts supposed to make those decisions? Is there a way to make everyone happy?
1: Well, I don't, this is a really contentious issue and I I don't think it's going to be possible to make everyone happy. That said, I think you're absolutely right. Um, All of our really positive examples of safely reopening schools come from countries where um, disease levels have been lower. Um, So I think there are some parts of the U.S. where um, the Disease trends are very much headed in the wrong direction, and it's going to be very difficult, I think, to bring back kids um, to schools in a way that makes people feel safe. Um, so, But in other communities where um, disease rates are lower, I think it's worth thinking about how it can be done and what um, measures can be put in place to for- further reduce the risks.
0: Joining us now is Debbie Trong, WMU's education reporter. Debbie, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: There be a lot of school districts are coming forward now with their tentative plans for the fall. These are very difficult decisions with no right answers. What are you noticing?
2: Yeah. So like you, you mentioned earlier, the plans for reopening in the fall really sort of vary depending on where in the region you live. So the school systems in Fairfax County and Loudoun County um, are offering students an option between virtual only instruction in the fall or a plan that would bring students back to school for part of the week. And then they would spend um, a few days you know, learning from home remotely. On the other hand, some school systems have Decided to go entirely virtual in the fall, and those school systems include Prince George's County and Prince William County. Um, I think school leaders are also really quick to note that, you know, this no plans are are really concrete and nothing is is set in stone and could shift depending on um, the public health situation and the guidance from experts. Uh, for example, in Arlington County, um, school leaders initially gave families the option of sending their uh, students to school for for part of the week. Um, The the superintendent there, Francisco Duran, backtracked this week and um, says that he wants the school systems to start entirely virtual um, in the fall.
0: Have any of these proposals been particularly divisive?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all of these conversations that are happening in communities have been contentious and, and really sort of understandably so school systems are having to balance um, sometimes competing desires between parents and teachers. You know, I've, I've heard from, from parents who really are concerned about the lack of socialization that their children are getting um, during the pandemic. And they say that remote instruction is, um, doesn't provide the same quality as in-person instruction. And on the other end, I've, I've heard from teachers who have these very real concerns about their health and the health of their families. Um, and they also have really practical concerns about how these sort of safety recommendations are going to be implemented in classrooms.
0: Education Secretary Betsy DeVos weighed in on Fairfax County's plan for the fall, saying parents are being given a, quote, false paradigm of either two days a week of in-classroom learning or five days a week of distance learning. How did Fairfax County respond to that criticism?
2: Yeah, so Fairfax County Public School Superintendent Scott Braybrand issued a statement to local media essentially saying that, you know, everyone wants to return to school normally, but that's just not possible given the, the recommendations from the CDC and other health experts and they're, you know, they've proceeded um, with their plan to offer either uh, instruction part-time in person or um, a full virtual model.
0: I should know that we reached out to Fairfax County Public Schools for this program, but they were unable to make someone available. Debbie, the Education Department's criticism is in line with the president's own insistence that schools bring students back this fall or face the possibility of federal funding cuts. Have these threats affected any school district decisions as far as you know? <laughs>
2: Uh, no, I'm not aware of any school district in the region who have changed their plans because of Trump's threat. I think most of the school systems are following local and state guidelines and for reopening, um, and those guidelines are informed by public health experts. Um, I think it's also important to note that federal money is really a relatively small fraction of school budgets, and most school budgets um, are paid for through local dollars.
0: Um. Um, Jennifer Nuzzo, you have your own concerns about these issues becoming less about public health and more about politics. What is especially troubling to you about the reopen schools debate and the way it's unfolding?
1: Yeah, I'm very concerned at how much of a political issue this has become. I mean, it's clearly a contentious issue and it's clearly an important issue, but I think, um, We've now, you know, devolved into camps where it's either you're in favor of opening or, in, or you're in favor of keeping closed. And the reality, I think, of what we need to be talking about is much more nuanced than that. Um, I think there are some places where reopening is probably not possible, but there are other places where it may be possible, but we have to really do the hard work and planning to make it possible. This will likely need require additional resources for school districts. It will require um, fairly creative solutions. But I think this... Um, the, the need to get kids back into in-person education is important enough that we should kind of roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of figuring out how it can be done in the places where it is possible to do so. But if we just simply kind of make it a political issue um, where it's just kind of a litmus test, you know, of of your, your politics, then I, I don't think we're going to be able to have those tough, meaningful conversations.
0: Debbie Tron, I'm wondering if you've noticed this in your own reporting. Do you find students, parents, and teachers separating separating into what's essentially camp reopen and camp keep it closed? What are you hearing from parents, students, and teachers?
2: Yeah, I think there are some folks who are firmly in one camp or the other, but I think there are also many other people who are really torn about whether or not they should send their children back to school in the fall if their school system is giving them that option. Um, You know, families... Many families, parents have had to juggle childcare with teaching and work, and that's unsustainable for for many families. And so, the prospect of you know having um, school there for their children is um, understandably really appealing. You know, there are also um, a lot of research about the negative effects on mental health that the time away from school is.
0: Uh oh, seem to be having a problem getting. Debbie, but let's go to Laura in Alexandria. Laura, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
3: I'm a special ed teacher in Fairfax County, and I have a lot of concerns about returning to school because we'll be required to wear full PPE, meaning a mask, um, a face shield, a gown, possibly gloves. And a lot of our kids that are medically fragile have um, a lot of doctor fears. And I just don't know if it will be good for our relationship with students to be wearing all of that equipment while we're trying to work with them. Um, And I also feel like they have not answered enough of our questions about what it's going to look like.
0: Um, We only have about 30 seconds left in this segment, but Star, go ahead and say what you would like to say.
3: Oh, thank you for taking my call.
4: Um, I also had a question about the impact, the safety of teachers on the job. Um, While the contagion rates for children may be um, far less than for adults, I'd like to know if the children can be carriers, whether they are ill or not. And I'd also uh, wonder if you could break that down according to the age of the children, because many um, okay.
0: children... Hold that thought. we got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll ask Dr. Jennifer Nuzzle to answer that. I'm Kojo Nam. Welcome back to our conversation about schools reopening. We got an email from Chris who says, I am a rising 12th grader in Howard County Public Schools in Maryland, although I recognize that my peers are losing out on a lot of essential services and contact with influential adults by foregoing in-person schooling, it seems like the general consensus among my peers is that we would rather be safe from the pandemic. In particular, my school and many neighboring schools are over capacity, making it nearly impossible to social distance with large class sizes and hallways that are jam-packed during class change. The Howard County Board of Education is still debating how to move forward considering the large budgetary commitments that need to go to safety. That was from Chris. Joining us now is Diane Morris, an Area Associate Superintendent in Montgomery County Public Schools. Diane Morris, thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you so much.
0: What are Montgomery County's current plans for reopening this fall?
5: Our current plan um, involves a blended model. Um, we've planned for what is what could be our optimal state. And we could get to a point where it is safe for students to come back to school and staff with some provisions in place, knowing that we also have to be prepared for an online only. And so similar to other districts, we're going to be asking parents um, to share their desire for their children so that we can plan appropriately. Um, And the options would be either this blended model where students come to the school for you know, X amount of time, and then they're virtual the other time, or just a virtual model. We know that in order to stand up our plan, there are two main variables, and those two variables are the desires of the families, as well as... The desire of our staff because we know that this is a difficult time for them as well. And so that's the data that we're collecting now, but we feel like we need to be planned for any possible scenario. And so that's really what we're trying to do.
0: How are these decisions ultimately being made?
5: So we, um, like other counties, are really looking at, I heard earlier from one of your other guests, we're looking at other countries that have already opened. We're looking at other states, other districts, as well as um, we've sent several surveys to staff and to families to get their initial thinking. We also follow the MSDE guidelines. There are several um, non-negotiable in the state recovery plan that we need to include in our plan, and so we use a variety of different uh, resources and data sources um, to create a plan that as you shared before, you know, is it going to make everyone happy? No, but we feel like has the most information possible. We also have teams that are working um, on different deliverables and aspects of the plan that include internal and external stakeholders, so that multiple perspectives are there and evident in the plan.
0: Here is Leah in Rockville, Maryland. Leah, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
5: Hi, um, I'm a high school teacher in MCPS, and I just wanted
4: to throw out there um, something I feel like not many people are saying anything about, which is that I totally understand. I have three kids of my own all in MCPS. The want the desire for socialization and to get your kids back around other kids. uh, But I really feel like the way it's going to be where they can't play together in normal ways, the classrooms are going to be at reduced capacity. Everyone's going to be wearing, you know, masks or PPE. Some of the benefits that I think people feel like they're going to get from having their kids back in school, the social ones for their own kids, they're not really going to get. It's going to be very unusual at school if kids do get to go back. And I just feel like that's something that nobody's really brought up. Um, I desperately want to go back to school and be with my students. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. As a teacher, we're, teachers are mostly eager to see their students in person again.
0: Well, Leah, thank you very much for your call. Diane Morris, it's my understanding that there are going to be phases of instruction in Montgomery County Public Schools. At least that's what you're considering at this point. In answer, in answer to Leah's question, how would that work? Who would be heading back for in-person school first?
5: So again, we're going to do a registration um, to find out from our pa- our families what their desire is. That will be uh, July 27th through August 7th is the window. Um, And then what we were thinking about was uh, to stage it. Again, uh, one of your other guests talked about how you would stage it and and stagger it with the younger students returning first and those students in discrete programs, um, in our discrete special education programs. And so the first two weeks would be virtual for everyone. And then if it's deemed safe, we would, working with uh, Dr. Travis Gales from the Department of Health and Human Services, we would then start phasing them back in with the earlier grades. Each phase lasts roughly two to four weeks. And so we would start with the earlier grades and then slowly move up um, to the higher grades with a focus on the transition years. So, you know, grade six, grade nine, because the research again shows that those are really critical points for students because they're learning new Routines and norms, and new, you know, ways to engage, um, and so that would be how we would stagger it. To Leah's point, the caller, we definitely are acknowledging that it's not business as usual. We have to think about this differently, um, and we have to create those opportunities for kids to be able to engage in a safe way.
0: Leslie tweets: What about families who don't have access to computers and reliable internet? How can we support them, Diane Morris?
5: So in Montgomery County, one of the things that we're most proud of is the work that we did last fall to get technology out to families and students. Um, To date, we have distributed over 68,000 Chromebooks to students, over 16,000 to staff, and an additional 6,000 Wi-Fi devices. Um, and so we've done a really good job. We are almost at a point where we're one-to-one. And so we feel great about those efforts. If the Chromebooks break or families need another, they're able to go to West Goody and pick that up. And we've even done it so it's not one device per family because we recognize that families have more than one children, more than one child rather. They have many children. And so we're able to give those devices one-to-one.
0: Here is Jacqueline in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Jacqueline, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
3: Hi, thank you, Kojo. Um, So
2: I have been teaching in Montgomery
0: County for 30 years, and I... Ooh, and now Jacqueline has dropped off. Diane Morris, we know that for younger kids, virtual instruction can be tough. What's the county doing to engage students virtually and to give them necessary breaks from their screens?
5: So it's a great point, and I get to wear both hats in Montgomery County. I serve on the executive staff, and I'm also a parent of a rising third grader and a rising 11th grader. So I know firsthand what it's like to put an eight-year-old in front of a screen and try to keep him engaged. We're really working with our staff this summer to provide professional learning opportunities around how do you, again, um, deliver content in a way that's engaging over, um, you know, using technology that allows for those breaks that you know makes room. We we don't want our students to be fatigued. The parents are clearly concerned about screen time, so we are really working with staff, using our central office staff to provide professional learning around that to to determine those best practices to do those things to keep our younger children engaged, giving them frequent breaks, having them stretch. Um, you know, st- uh, social emotional learning is a huge component of our plan and morning meetings so that we're checking in to see the well-being of our students as well as the well-being of our staff. So that is a component that we're addressing through the summer.
0: Uh, In the minute or so we have left in this segment, how many families so far have selected a combination of in-person and online instruction?
5: We have not given our survey yet. That will be going out July 27th. Um, So we did do preliminary surveys, and roughly 42% of the parents surveyed, and I believe we surveyed around 30,000 parents, said that they would send their children back to school. And then we had about 30% who just weren't sure, and the remainder said absolutely not. So I think our parents, rightfully so, are waiting for the developed plan and the information that they need in order to make an informed decision.
0: The well, parents can opt out of in-person instruction for their children, but how much of a say do teachers get here in the 30 seconds or so we have left?
5: So that's something we're certainly working through. Um, you know, what does the law say? What are the concerns of our teachers? Are we able to mitigate them? You know, we're not. We we're being very honest that this is about reduction and not elimination. You know, we safety is important. At the end of the day, what I'll say is, it seems like it is a personal choice. It's okay. it's beyond politics, our values, and so we're okay. working with our associations right now.
0: Got to take a short break. We'll be right back. I'm Kojonam. Welcome back. We're talking about schools reopening and how they're going to do that. Debbie Trong, we know that some teachers are saying that in-person classes just won't work. What concerns have you been hearing from teachers who are hesitant to return to the classroom?
2: Yeah, I've heard concerns from teachers, especially elementary school teachers, who say that it's going to be really challenging to keep a distance of six feet um, between their students and themselves and between students. I talked with a a third-grade teacher yesterday, um, who said that you know she doesn't think that she'll be able to keep mass on her students throughout the school day, um, and you know I've also just heard concerns about instruction. Um, student teachers, for example, won't be able to work closely with students um, in small groups, and students you know won't be going to to lunch um, to lunch rooms and and mixing with people. Um, in that way. And so they feel like the socialization in that respect will be lost.
0: Diane Morris, I wonder how you would respond to those concerns from teachers who feel going back to school this fall puts them right in the line of fire for this virus. What would you say in particular to the Maryland State Education Association and the Maryland PTA who are requesting remote instruction for the start of the school year?
5: I would say that we absolutely understand their concerns. Um, and that we're working through to create conditions that again put their safety um, in the forefront. You know, we're we're talking about P- PPE equipment. What what are we going to be, be able to offer? Um, having masks for students, having gloves, having sanit uh, sanitize. Um stations available when you enter the building, ensuring that kids are washing frequently, um, thinking about how kids move around a building to eliminate or to rather reduce those risks. We also know that there are some students um, that that just will not keep that mask on. So for those staff members, you know, do do we look at shields? So we're looking at all the possible scenarios and the best ways to be able to protect our staff.
0: Dr. Jennifer Nuzzle, these hybrid approaches to education are becoming fairly common. What are your thoughts on this model?
1: Well, I mean, I think the key here is to allow some flexibility. And if that's um, a way that we can, you know, allow some um, in-person education, then that seems um, preferable. You know, I've, I think some of the earlier comments pointed to the fact that there will just be some that do not feel um, comfortable. And, you know, even if we um, do all that we can to try to mitigate risks, um, there will still some be some degree of risk, um, just like there is anywhere else in the community. And um, one of the challenges in in dealing with this is that how we um, prioritize the benefits and risks differ among us. So I think allowing um, flexibility and allowing um, families to opt out if they need to, and in some cases, teachers that don't feel comfortable, you know, perhaps giving them alternatives, um, it, it is helpful. But the key here is, you know, let's let's um think of some creative solutions and figure out how uh can be done rather than just I'm afraid put this in the too hard box and it'll stay there for a long time.
0: Here's Lois in Sykesville. Lois you're on the air go ahead please.
1: Hi. I
4: have heard nothing about the experiences of the daycares that are open right now for uh for essential workers. How are they doing? What are their results? Are they having a lot of disease? Um, It seems like that would be a wonderful source of
5: data, and I haven't heard a bit about it.
0: Diane Morris, have you been looking at daycare centers at all?
5: So Essie McGuire is our associate um, over operations, and she has been really working with um, the county and their daycares because the caller raises a good point. They they have been doing this. They are thinking about this work differently. They're strategizing. And so we are leaning to them even about what's, what's the classroom setup like? What are the routines that are established? Uh, you know, we can't have stations per se where kids are gathering learning stations like like we have. So what are what are things that they're doing differently? So Essie has really made it her point to spend some time with those individuals um, to then apply the learnings to to our um, to to our plan.
0: Well, we are supposed to be joined at some point by Lewis Ferby, Chancellor of DC Public Schools, but he is in a press conference. As- right now with Mayor Bure, Muriel Bowser, who has apparently announced that D.C. public schools will not be making a decision on this issue yet until July 31st. But we do have Elizabeth Davis, the president of the Washington Teachers Union, on the line. Liz Davis, thank you for joining us.
6: Good afternoon, Kojo, and thank you for inviting me.
0: So what are your concerns about D.C. schools reopening? What, how has the union has been involved, if at all, with this planning?
6: Well, of course, we have not been as involved as we'd like to be. Um, the, the teachers' union and students are eager to get back to in-person teaching. Educators miss their students, and students are missing their teachers. But we certainly want to ensure that the return to in-person teaching is going to be safe, and that has been our position. and, and 93% of our teachers agree with that. Um, we we are basically we've developed a reopen. Uh, plan for dc public schools we've shared it with the chancellor and of course he and his team are looking at that we want to also ensure that throughout the summer and i'm happy to hear that the mayor is delaying her decision uh, because we had some serious concerns about reopening without having clear information as to how that was going to happen given that we have a limited funding but uh, teachers agree that we want in-person teaching they're simply saying we want it done safely
0: Well, I remember earlier when the mayor had put together a special commission on education, it was only after you protested about not being included that you were eventually included. Are you concerned that teachers in general and the Washington Teachers Union in particular are not as intensely involved in this planning as you would like?
6: I have been concerned with that issue for the last decade, Kojo. And of course, we're trying to change that mindset with the new school leadership. However, It's a challenge, uh, redirecting, but we are on the right path. Chancellor Furby understands that a plan that does not um, include the voice of teachers, first and foremost, and parents, is a plan for disaster. Parents want to trust the system, but they simply have not been given any reason to do so. And they want to see details as how schools are going to reopen, where will the funding come from, in order to ensure that the proper PPE, that the technology issue is gonna be resolved, which it has not at this point. And of course, we are also hoping that Chancellor Kirby is going to allow his, his leadership team to work alongside our WTU reopen task force members. Over 200 teachers have been working on a report, on this report, Kojo, for over six weeks. And of course, they have specific details, unlike the recommendations coming from the mayor's uh, reopen task force. These teachers provided specific details for how schools should reopen safely, and they align those details with CDC guidelines and the state superintendent's guidelines for safety.
0: Uh, before we let you go, let's hear from Signe in Washington, D.C., who I think is a teacher in D.C. public schools. Signe, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
4: Thank you. I am a teacher, and I don't want to repeat um, things that other people have said. I, uh, I teach English as a second language in elementary school. Teaching online is not the same as teaching um, in person. But for me, teaching in person means sitting at a small table with five or six kids up very close to me. We're looking at what's going on in each other's mouths. We're spraying droplets everywhere. And that's not what it's going to have to look like when we go back. My big, big overall concern is being able to trust the safety of the environment. I understand that the risk factor, there's a risk factor everywhere. And there must be an acceptable level of risk that for each individual um, may be different. But public policy-wise, there there has to be an acceptable level of risk. And I'm going to put this out here. I do not trust that the environment will be made as safe as it possibly could be. And I'll give you an example. We've had flickering lights in our building, and we put in work orders and work orders and work orders, in our classroom, in the art classroom, and it took a year and a half to get someone to come out and change the lights for us. I don't see how they're going to have ventilation systems set up. I don't see how they're going to deal with behavior. And and just take this as an example or, or as a question. If you have a pod of, of children, a little cohort of children and a teacher, trying to minimize um, contact and and spread of broad contact by keeping contact in that group. What happens when a teacher calls in sick? Where do you get the substitutes from? You can't double up classes anymore.
0: Okay, thank you for raising those issues. Signy identifies as a teacher at Whittier Education Campus in D.C. Public Schools. Liz Davis, what would you say to Signy?
6: I understand Cygnus mistrust and teachers who are, were in those schools before the pandemic reported issues of, uh, you know, cleaning issues, uh, lack of sanitizers. So they have reason to be concerned about whether or not DCPS is going to be able to have the safety guidelines in place by August 31st. Strongly suggest, I, I'm, I'm strongly opposed to reopening in-person at this time. However, I do believe that a very good return to in-person teaching can be hammered out in collaboration with teachers. And of course, we appreciate the insight of the student schedules that the Chancellor and the Mayor have provided. But how specifically will DCPS protect the health of our teachers and our students if we return to schools before we're ready? Even on a staggered schedule, that would be risky. And we've heard a lot about guidance from the CDC and OSCE and, and DCPS how they're going to provide PPE. However, there's no public spending plan on local budgets for PPE. We've long had issues uh, uh, having the basics, soaps, tissues. What Signe alluded to, having the basics in schools before the pandemic. And so what we want to know, what is going to be different in reopening schools uh, in person after um, after we reopen this fall?
0: And finally, this, Liz Davis, a listener tweets, many of our DCPS teachers with school-aged children live outside of D.C. They're going to be the hardest hit by the hybrid model. Furthermore, many teachers who live in D.C. with children under three, like myself, are struggling to find adequate and affordable childcare in five weeks. That's going to be an issue, isn't it, Liz Davis, finding child care?
6: That is absolutely going to be an issue. Hoja, we have over 40% of our teachers who live outside of the district, and the majority of them live in PG County, who, County who has just announced that they're opening in uh, January. Now, that creates problems because those teachers who live in PG County, but now with school-age children, or living with members of families who have underlying health conditions, that is going to create problems for them. And we need to have some detailed plan worked out that would allow teachers such as that to opt out of in-person teaching. And until we have that, and that can only happen in collaboration. We cannot do it in isolation the way DCPS is doing it now. We're hoping that they're gonna redirect in the next few days and begin working with teachers and the teachers union on hammering out a plan that is actually going to be be, work for all teachers, but also provide the options to those teachers who have students, school age children at home, and also those teachers who have underlying health conditions themselves or living with a member of their family with underlying health conditions, we just need to see more details. As as Miss as, um, Diane Morris stated in her interview, I listened to that. Basically, parents and teachers who are in the district are still waiting for a detailed plan of how schools are going to reopen. Not just trust us; we'll do the right thing. That will not work.
0: Elizabeth Davis is president of the Washington Teachers Union. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz.
6: Thank you. And have a good day,
0: Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo. When we We're talking earlier about this tension that many families are experiencing. I'm wondering what you would tell parents and guardians who want to do what's best for the kids, but they're buckling under the pressure at home. What should they do this school year? You're an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, and you're also a parent. How are you making these decisions in your own family?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. And that's, I guess, <laughs> for the first thing I would say to other, other parents is it's really hard. Um, you know, I feel um, that our circumstances are such that if schools were to reopen in the fall, I would feel comfortable sending my children, um, but I very much um, want the teachers there to feel comfortable as well. I don't think it's going to serve my kids or any kids well if teachers feel like they're being held hostage and and, and in the schools unwillingly. Um, so I think it is possible um, to do and to, to do so um, without um, too much fear. I mean, I think one of the earlier callers made an important point about daycares and other things that have been um, open this whole time, Might be My four-year-old's in daycare and my son's in camp right now. And so, um, you know, they have made um, arrangements and they have made uh, modifications and um, they're actually working better than I think we would have expected them to work. So just want to say that um, I understand the concerns, but I also think that um, we, this is important enough that we should try to work through these concerns.
0: Here is Austin in Montgomery County. Austin, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
7: Hi, how are you, Kojo? Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, So I want to say one of the benefits, I'm in Montgomery County, and they did an excellent job this year um, starting this whole program from scratch with distance learning. My daughter is uh, diagnosed ADHD, and she also has uh, other issues. Um, The positive was she was able to sit in her room, it was quiet, they could mute the other students over Zoom, so she was able to concentrate a little easier. so my wife is also. She was COVID positive about 90 days ago, and she was in the hospital, and it was uh, it was it was very scary at that time. It was uh, very touch and go. We were not sure what was going on. She was very sick, and the fear of my child bringing home COVID again, because we don't know how long the immunity is going to last, if it lasts at all, is a very big concern for us. Um, so I would definitely be for having distance learning remain, <clears throat> and I don't think there could be any like. I understand there's students, there's parents out there that aren't in a situation where they can stay home with their kids, and I get that, but um, my my personal opinion is that we should do only distance learning until we can get COVID under control.
0: Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, how um, about those concerns about people who have had COVID-19 and have recovered and concerned about getting it again?
1: Yeah, I think this is an open question. Um we're still learning more about this virus, and I think the prevailing thought is still that um, there may be some level of protection for some time, but there are also still questions about that, um, and particularly um, if people have been infected and mildly infected, that may um, particularly mean some um, waning antibodies. Um, but uh, you know, this is again, this is one of these unknowns, and this is why it's important for schools um, to, if they're going to reopen, to think about these precautions because. The these are very valid concerns that parents and staff have about whether um, it's, uh, you know, how we can um, make these environments as safe as possible.
0: Joining us now is Lewis Farabee, the Chancellor of DC Public Schools. Uh, Dr. Farabee, thank you for joining us.
8: Thank you, Kojo. I apologize. I'm, I'm joining a little late here, but wanted to have an opportunity to uh, respond and join the conversation.
0: Well, you're joining us late because you were at a press conference with Mayor Bowser. So can you give us the latest on what's what the planning outlook is for D.C. public schools?
8: Yes, happy to do so. So the mayor announced today that the decision about the school year for 2021 uh, would now be made on Friday, uh, July 31st. And uh, the reason being is we continue to prioritize health and safety and. But given that's a top priority and conditions are shifting somewhat in the District of Columbia, uh, we believe it's in our best interest to to, uh, postpone that decision until the 31st. We also did share and had the opportunity to share with families our schedules for hybrid instruction should we move to a uh, learning in the school building structure and we also share with families that there'll be choice. And just, just so listening to a portion of the conversation, uh, it's important to understand uh, and reiterate for our families that DCPS will provide choice. And at the request of our families, we'll offer a all virtual option. And then we'll also offer a hybrid option, which includes uh, the ability to have in-person instruction. And we we heard from over 17,000 students, families, and staff, which helped inform our proposal that was discussed today. And there's three key principles that that is driving this work, cultural, and that is we know that learning in person is is optimal, uh, and we know that our students learn best when there's in-person instruction. But we're also, secondly, prioritizing safety, uh, and we want to ensure that there are robust health and safe protocols, and families can choose virtual only if they would like to do so. And then finally, we'll continue to operate with equity in mind, knowing that students may need uh,
0: additional access to supplies, materials, and supports accordingly. What plans, if any, have you looked to as models for what you're trying to do? So we have really relied, you a lot on the guidance
8: from DC Health, which is also grounded in the guidance from the CDC. Uh, and what's important there is this notion around maintaining a commitment to uh, six-feet distancing and also face coverings, which have been uh, proven in the science and the research to reduce... Uh, the contraction of of COVID. And so that will be a part of our hybrid learning model. In addition to ensuring that there's cleaning, sanitizing, uh, minimal interaction uh, of large groups of students. And finally, this uh, principle of cohorting students, uh, ensuring that we're able to appropriately contact trace Uh, And if there's a a case of COVID, we can uh, easily communicate with those individuals that are in close contact with that
0: person involved with the case. Here is Nasreen in Washington, D.C. Nasreen, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
3: Hi, I wanted to address an issue that I feel that's very important that's actually on the CBC website, and that is the infrastructure, the actual buildings in the public school systems in the United States is not known to be the best, and therefore we know that COVID can actually be circulated from the ventilation system? How is that being addressed for the protection of the teachers? So we focus on um, the fact that kids can actually survive this and they can recover quickly, but we're not focused on the fact that these kids can transmit it to the people within their own families, the teacher safety. So we need to look at the buildings. The second part is I have two university students in my household, that will be going to New York uh, in the fall, and we've chosen not to go. Obviously, because uh, the young that age group has been the most careless in their social distancing and their partying, and living in the dorms obviously is not the best scenario. And therefore, uh, they will stay at home.
0: Okay, Louis Furby, how about the ventilation of buildings? Have you been looking at your buildings?
8: Absolutely. We have done analysis of the ventilation, uh, the operation of our HVAC systems to ensure that uh, there's appropriate filtering and the air in the building uh, will be safe for students and staff. Uh, In terms of what was referenced earlier around, you know, can young people uh, appropriately uh, social distance? We believe there is precedent for that. Um, We have had Uh, numbers of of daycare that have been open uh, since March and have successfully supported students and provided care throughout the day. Uh, And so we believe uh, in great confidence that it can be done. However, we know that it should be done with small groups of students, uh, and we are prepared to limit uh, classrooms to no more than 12 people in a room and we're prepared to maintain uh, social distancing. We also will maximize our our campuses and utilize in different ways, spaces like our gymnasiums and also maximize outdoor space as well. Uh, We'll also have a staggered entry and dismissal. Uh, We'll serve meals primarily in the classroom in a grab and go fashion. Uh, So what you're hearing is lots of practices and procedures that would limit mass gatherings and also help us maintain Uh, successful social
0: distancing, and and also cohorting. Um, Some teachers have said they don't trust the district to meet these health guidelines. What would you say to assure them? You only have about 30 seconds left.
8: Yeah, I think it's it's a conversation that we need to keep having. Uh, It's a conversation that we're having with the Washington Teacher Union. We represent our teachers, and I think it's important that we continue that conversation so they understand all the work that DCPS has done and will continue to do to keep staff and students safe.
0: Lewis Ferby is the Chancellor of D.C. Public Schools. Lewis Ferraby, thank you so much for joining us.
8: Thank you. Safety uh, of our students and staff will remain a priority. I appreciate
0: you allowing me to speak today. Debbie Truong is WMU's education reporter. Debbie, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Kojo.
0: Diane Morris is an area associate superintendent in Montgomery County Public Schools. Diane Morris, thank you for joining
5: us. Thank you so much. I wish you well.
0: And Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is an epidemiologist and an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Again, thank you all for joining us. Today's show was produced by Julie Deppenbrock. Coming up Friday on the Politics Hour, Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch is not happy with Governor Larry Hogan's decision to host regular in-person elections this fall. And we hear from Loudoun County Chair Phyllis Randall on removing a Confederate monument in Leesburg and how the county is coping with the coronavirus. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nand.
2: The Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Grannon, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardnier, Richard Cunningham, and Kayla Hewitt.
1: Our managing producer is Ingelisa Shrobstorp. Our engineers are Mike Kidd and Rashad Young. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org.
3: Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.